0: d De-
1: Welcome to Deviant, Deviant Women. Women! My name is Lauren. And I'm Alicia. And we are your hosts once again, as always, on the green chairs. On <laughs> the green chairs. It's
0: a very key detail. Yes. Here to take you through the lives of different Deviant Women from history, mythology,
1: literature, and contemporaneity. That's right. We're here once again, you're a little bit sick, Alicia. I am. i got a husky, bit of a husky voice, so I'll do most of the talking this time.
0: Yeah, oh, that's good. Yes, that would be excellent if you could do that. Mm. I'm just a little bit snotty, a little bit flummy over here. Delightful stuff.
1: Yeah, that was me yeah. a few weeks ago.
0: Yeah. It
1: is winter now.
0: My turn now. Um, and we've had a, a fun couple of days. Look, I think, Lauren, we should just take a moment because... <laughs> There is something that's very close to our hearts that just happened recently and we should just take a moment to just deconstruct some of Eurovision. Just honour it, just it has to just be a moment. Just a moment. That's fine. Eurovision. So you know, our friends in Europe will know what we're talking about <laughs> and they'll wonder, why the fuck are we even in it? And that's a very good question. <laughs> a really good question. And to our European listeners we say, We're we sorry, we're <laughs> <They're> sorry. <laughs> We wish we weren't in it either. Uh, the novelty has worn thin. So hopefully we'll stop being in it soon.
1: I do appreciate, though, that despite the fact that Australia, as a colonised nation, has a lot of people from European heritage. Oh, we've got so many European we' With heroes. only – and most of us only have one or two generation differences from our European heritage, so there is that argument. But I really, really, really like the fact that not a single one of our Australian representatives at Eurovision have had – a european heritage that's true it's been very diverse <laughs> very indeed diverse. i really like it
0: <laughs> uh yeah we've sent some pretty good representatives in yeah. the few years that uh we've been in it but hopefully it'll stop now yeah uh we want it to stop as much as you do because really it's just quite silly and our jess mowboy did not do so great simply because everybody's sick of us uh, <laughs> jess Malboy's performance was actually really quite good yeah she was quite stellar she did all right but uh, everyone's a bit over it, yeah. so that's fair enough. To all of our listeners in every other part of the world who have no idea what we're talking about. Don't worry about don't it. Don't worry about it. So if we're not in Europe, then, Lauren, where are we in the world? We are in North America.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, we're at it's, it's a big place. In the United States. States part, yeah, North, North America, still a large place, quite large. South Dakota, all right, good, narrowing it down. South Dakota for a little while, then mm-hmm. we're going to go to Indiana, I'm going to go to Utah, I'm going to go to Washington, do too. Oh, I like it, great, excellent. Let's traverse the traverse United the States, the plains. We're going to spend just some time in the plains and the prairies, actually. Oh, good, I like yeah. it, yeah, lovely, which is good. We are with a really fascinating rebellious woman Ooh. we're with a woman named zakala shah which is a lakota name which means red bird mm-hmm. and her christian name is gertrude Bonnen, and she was born on the Yankton indian reservation in south dakota in february 1876 oh we're in the 1800s again sorry i can't help it here we are again that's all right no. you know, good times do you know why we're here though it's why? because i came across this woman and i was so entranced by a particular image of her. Are you S- girl crushing? I have a mad girl crush oh, yeah, girl crushing. on Zitkala Shah like she is a beautiful beautiful woman. And i don't mean to say that in and she's also an incredible intellectual activist writer musician but stunning. Just it's all right, Lauren. Look, she's really When you beautiful. girl crush, you girl crush. There's nothing to be done. And, but you know what the thing is? It's that she looks so of our time. Like these... Oh, oh that's so
0: weird, isn't it? When you look at photos and yes. people really look like anachronistic. Like yes. you look at photos and you're like, that person looks very modern. Yes. Or you look at a modern photo and you think that person looks very historical.
1: Yeah. Like that's a weird thing. That Looking at photos, there's happens. these like a quite a number of photos of her in her 20s. And she really looks like... She would be, like, the way that it's the intensity of the stare on her, like, the way that she's staring down the camera, this this kind of wild intensity in her eyes that just seems completely at odds with what we typically see in kind of demure Victorian mm-hmm. feminine photographs, you know? yeah. yeah.
0: And so obviously this is one we, should all, me. <laughs> one we should all be
1: Googling yeah. pictures of. Yeah. And so these photographs of her may be like, oh, who is this woman who is staring down this camera in this way? And then there's other photographs of her where she looks a bit more demure. She's kind of looking over her shoulder with her violin in hand. But even then she still just has this look that is so different to so many other women in her time. And, and I think it makes a lot of sense when we get into some of her biography where that look comes from so yeah it's rebellious nature yes excellent i love it let's dive in (laughs) yes have you have you heard of her before no well this is i don't know if she would be perhaps the name would be more familiar to our north american listeners you might have all grown up with the stories of Zidkala Shah I don't know but to us in Australia she was a completely new figure to me I had never heard of her before so when I came across her story I was really excited so I apologize if I get any pronunciations wrong though because I am Australian and I'm not familiar with the pronunciations but I will give it my best (laughs) do you like how often we just fall back on
0: we're Australian, yeah. <laughs> yeah. therefore we can't pronounce we can't anything. We talk properly. <laughs> we, we can't speak good language. Nah. At least we don't talk like this. Put on your proper
1: podcast presenting voice yes. and let's dive in. And let's go in. All oh, right. So like I said, she was born in the Yankton Indian Reservation in South Dakota and she was raised by her single mother. Her father was a German-American man named Felker who abandoned the family. Uh. Uh, when uh, Zitkala Shah was very young. Ugh. Despite this, though, she had a very happy childhood with her mother. She had two older siblings and she was raised with her mother's family and the tribe on the reservation. As I said, Zitkala Shah was a writer. She wrote a lot about her childhood. Oh, so you've got some quite a few primary sources for I this sure episode. I sure do. Oh, good. I've got actually a lot of quotes from her primary sources because she wrote a lot of essays. And so they're really accessible and short and great. Oh, so actually, I've, I'll put up a list in the show notes if anyone wants to track down any of the collections. But, yeah, they're really quick to read. Like you can just sit digestible. down with a couple of them. They're digestible. I've got, got some of Siddhartha's own words here, and I, I'm going to go to one of these stories right now. In the collection American Indian Stories, she writes... I was a wild little girl of seven, loosely clad in a slip of brown buckskin and light-footed, with a pair of soft moccasins on my feet. I was as free as the wind that blew my hair and no less spirited than a bounding deer.
0: I can see already why you you girl crush on him.
1: (laughs) (laughs) A kindred spirit, Lauren, a kindred spirit. But this wild life. In the wilderness with her free flowing hair and her soft moccasins on her feet. It's not forever. Don't laugh. laugh. No, don't laugh because it's going to get shit
0: oh so yes we're gonna, we're gonna get a bit real
1: we're gonna get a bit real because yeah. when she was eight years old missionaries came to the reservation oh uh, yeah shit gets real yeah so they were recruiting children for the quaker school recruiting recruiting that the word, is that the word we're gonna that's the use word we, that's the word that's used okay recruiting children uh, for the quaker school in inverted school. commas yeah recruiting The school was called White's. What? Sorry, yes, no, just wait. Started badly. White's Manual Labour Institute. Oh, so White was a person. White was a person. (laughs) But when you put it in, and like I had the same reaction. Also, an ironic title. When I first read it, I was like, White's manual labor institute what the fuck kind of a place is it are we in oliver twist <laughs> so yes it was a school founded by a man named josiah white okay for the education and advancement of children yeah obviously now okay so as australians we are very 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 familiar with our own very similar history with the stolen generation okay um which saw indigenous children taken from their families and placed in white homes or schools for the purposes of assimilation and education and eradicating indigenous culture
0: so many countries have this same story exactly Canada as well yeah
1: good times people yeah so even though like obviously we don't have this connection and experience in the american context but it's a very very similar story to what happened here in australia in australia was it was forcible Mm. remove removal they were chased down and unhunted and taken from their families in this case it sounds more like the missionaries would go in and sort of lure the children away with here's how it shah describes it with promises of all the red, red apples she could eat and she would get to ride on a train, an iron horse, she calls it, for the first time. And they made it sound like this exotic wonderland, Mm -hmm. you know, where she would have all of these opportunities and food and it was going to be so exciting. And Zadkala Shah couldn't wait to go. Yeah. Paradise. Paradise. mm -hmm. Unfortunately, of course, that's not the case when is it ever the case yes
0: (laughs) if anybody ever offers you all that stuff it's probably not true
1: it's probably
0: not going to be what you're going to get
1: and her mother warned her her mother tried to warn her so she could have stayed yeah she she made the decision to go yes she did she made the decision to go she believed that you know it really would be a good place yeah so she arrived to find it bitterly cold no apples in season (laughs) And she was rudely awakened into the realities of the boarding school. She found the school's strict routines and rules quite a rude shock. Bells marked the day's schedule. She describes girls marching in stiff shoes, in lines. And now this is the worst of all, she had to cut her hair and this was devastating so her mother had taught zikala shah that only captured warriors had their hair shorn and only those in mourning wore it short and so when her friend at the school told her that this was going to happen and warned her that she must submit because they are strong zikala shah responded no i will not submit i will struggle first and she tried to hide but it was no good. She was discovered and she kicked and screamed and like fought back. And so they tied her to a chair. Yep. And the scissors were taken to her. And she writes, I cried aloud, shaking my head all the while until I felt the cold blade of the scissors against my neck and heard them gnaw off one of my thick braids. Then I lost my spirit.
0: And This is a whole problematic thing of like, you just come in with your concept of what's good and what's right yeah. and this is the best thing to do. And, oh, no, you know, you're in a boarding school now and I'm sure lice is rampant and whatever, so we're mm. going to cut your hair and that's the easiest option. But, of course, it's this whole culture that's lost in translation. But that's the whole point. That's the whole
1: point, isn't it? It's, They're severing from their culture. That's, that's what right. they want. It's a process of assimilation. Yeah. You know, they had their hair taken from them, their clothes taken from them, their names taken mm. Their mm. names. names. Mm. Your name is taken from you. Your language is taken from you. Everything that ties you to home is, severed. is gone. Mm-hmm. And that's the point. That's yeah. the whole purpose and of these And that's such places. a
0: symbolic severing too, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Like an actual physical severing.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like it would be f- painful. yeah. And so this is just the first of many indignities that she'd suffer at the hand of the missionaries, but it's also the first of many of her moments of resistance and rebellion against such indignities. Like I said, language is gone hair is gone, clothes are gone, also were her cultural stories. And this for Zikala Shan is very important. Instead, they were replaced with biblical stories and so the Great Spirit became God. And for Zikala Shan, by the way, she always saw the two as being the same thing. Mm-hmm. She She describes them as being one. However, she mentions that her traditions never spoke of the Great Spirit's enemy. This horned mm. devil, the missionaries were always on about. And that comes up again later in her life. So in her autobiographical text, she writes that she felt that she'd become an unrecognizable version of herself. My body was given back to me, sprawled out, distorted, recolored. Mmm, yeah. Pretty potent work. Three colored colored Distorted. So there's yeah. this really kind of severing of herself. And this is a theme that we see arise a lot in her work, in her creative work as an adult, is this tension between cultures. The tension that of self, of having this idea of herself as being really split now because she no longer completely fits in at home, but she also definitely doesn't fit in in a white world. She's just forced into this liminal tense space in between Mm. where she doesn't really belong anywhere she doesn't feel a strong sense of belonging anywhere and her idea of self-identity is is really split Mm. that's a major theme in her work so yeah so she spent six years of her life at the boarding school and many of these schools So how old
0: was she when she went into
1: the boarding school? eight eight yeah 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 so eight through to 16 Mm -hmm. i guess around that many of these schools like since have been discovered to have had cases of, you know, sexual abuse, manual and physical labour, mental abuse, you know. I mean, again, really common stories, mm-hmm. you know. Sadly, also
0: stories that don't happen to be all that uh, unique to the 1800s either. No, stories no. Stories that, gee, they continue to happen over and over again in yep. history. They never go away, those stories. No. It's really quite shocking, isn't it, how... When we look at history, we see how, how much we, it is. Yeah, we see how recent it is and we see how little we ever fucking learn. Yeah. Isn't that great about history? Great. Lauren, <laughs> regale us with some more lessons we haven't learned. All right.
1: Well, I'm going to give this little summary of the boarding school kind of experience from Julie Davis, who argues... Julie perhaps, Davis? Julie Davis. Perhaps the most fundamental conclusion that emerges from boarding school histories is the profound complexity of the historical legacy for Indian people's lives, that's her words, by the way. The diversity among boarding school students in terms of age, personality, family situation, and cultural background created a range of experiences, attitudes, and responses. Boarding schools embodied both victimization and agency for Native people, and they served as sites of both cultural loss and cultural persistence. These institutions intended to assimilate Native people into mainstream society and eradicate Native cultures became integral components of American Indian identities and eventually fueled the drive for political and cultural self determination in the late 20th century
0: yeah and that's so important isn't it that idea of persistence it's that whole idea yeah. of of these sorts of institutions or these ideas that are actually try they try to suppress to oppress to destroy certain things and in the end all they really serve to do is
1: to light a fire yeah to actually persist and this is certainly the case with sit sa totally lit a fire in her so i was reading these stories about how she became actually quite compliant but in a really subversive way so like when she was asked to mash turnips she was like i'm gonna mash those fucking turnips (laughs) so hard they're gonna turn to complete mush and liquid and you won't even be able to keep it on your fork and Uh, uh the turnip rebellion like this is the type of stuff that she does it's this kind of i'm doing what you said yes what you asked yeah but she's trying to take back the power every time yeah she's yeah and that's what i think is just so cool Mm. about it i just think she's so cool she did really really miss home though she left when she was eight well she was eight yeah 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 she went back once three years in and then came back to the boarding school again her mother wanted her to stay home but i think she actually wanted to finish her education Mm. so even though it was not a great place she did want to become educated. And that's part of the whole tension that she felt yeah. her whole life. Split of identity. Exactly. Yeah. It's that she did want to educate herself and she did want to, like, achieve all these things, but she knew that in doing so she was playing into this mm. white man's game. Well, and educate herself in an
0: Anglo concept as yes, well. exactly. Like, it's a yes. different kind of education. Yes. It's not absolutely. the same education she would have got if, had she stayed with her family. Yep. It's a different concept of education.
1: Yes, and that's a really primary concern of hers. So, yeah, so after six years at the boarding school, her mother really wanted her to return home, but she, she wanted to continue her education even further. And so she enrolled in Earlham College in Indiana. So she turned her longing for home into more creative pursuits, which is a good way to, you know, expend That energy, and she began writing about her culture and life back home in the West on the plains. And in particular, she began translating Native American legends into both Latin and English. Oh, that's pretty fancy. Yeah. Mm. At college, though, she was somewhat of a recluse. She didn't socialize very much. She continued to miss her mother very deeply. But she, like I said, she channeled this energy and she became really, really talented. And these talents started to be, to get her recognized. She was studying the violin and Isn't the piazza. You mentioned before that there was a picture of her with her violin. Yeah, so. so she became a great violinist. She was a pianist, she was a singer, and she was a really successful orator. So successful, in fact. But at one competition – well, okay, so it actually – oh, it's a kind of – it's a mixed story. It's a little bit of good. <laughs> oh, bit of no, nice. it's mixed not great. A
0: story, all right, great.
1: So she was at one oratory competition, right, where representatives from college from all over the state had gathered at the Opera House. It was a big deal, yeah? The Opera House. The Opera House mm-hmm. of Indiana. I'm going to imagine it's beautiful. <laughs> and problematic, she is a Native American girl at a college. So she's got the double – Whammy, imagining there's not many of them around. Yeah, Mm -hmm. basically that's the one. (laughs) And she kind of in oh, I don't even like saying it because it's so problematic. But she came to be seen as this poster child. Oh, we've we've been there before.
0: We've been here before. Yeah,
1: yeah, the poster child for the success of the native american boarding schools you know like hey look what a good job we're doing we got this native american girl all the way through to college yeah see it works if we can do it with this one girl we can do it with any yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah, so she was unique she was lonely she was also though very very successful yeah yeah and so at this competition there was a sign made with the word "squaw" on it that people held up in the audience. Um, they drew kind of rude, crude sort of drawings of like an of a Native American girl on posters. So the audience were pretty hostile. Yeah, basically. hell yeah, really hostile. She kind of describes it though. She she just grits her teeth mm-hmm. and gets through it. And her her speech was actually titled "Side by Side," which was a uh, scathing indictment of white society and christianity's hypocrisy (laughs) oh yeah that's not gonna be a popular topic she fucking won a prize though yeah she walked away with a ribbon she did a really good job um but her victory was somewhat bittersweet obviously i could imagine yeah she took the event pretty hard she knew no matter how successful she was how educated she became that she would always be an outsider yeah never gonna be good enough Yes. Um, And at this stage of her life that she was ready to, and I quote, curse men of small capacity for being the dwarves their God made them. Oh, wow. That's great. It is, isn't it? (laughs) Curse men of small capacity for being the dwarves their God made them. That's great. Note that that. she says their God as well. Yeah. Not God. Yeah. Interesting. And no offense to actual dwarves. No. This is all... quotes (laughs) so she had uh in this moment a bit of a self-realization for the white man's papers i had given up my faith in the great spirit for these same papers i had forgotten the healing in trees and brooks on account of my mother's simple view of life and my lack of any i gave her up I made no friends among the race of people I loathed. Like a slender tree, I had been uprooted from my mother, nature, and God. I was shorn of my branches, which had waved in sympathy and love for home and friends. The natural coat of bark, which had protected my oversensitive nature, was scraped off to the very quick.
0: Wow, she's very descriptive.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Her prose is very descriptive. She writes about nature in really beautiful beautiful ways she decided that she was going to become a teacher and she took a post at carlisle indian industrial school in pennsylvania 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 i'd love to go to pennsylvania really i'd like a pin that says pennsylvania 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 oh lauren (laughs) oh lauren that was a really good pun (laughs) so here she taught music and she continued writing and was again inspired by her life at home, but also this time by her life at the boarding school And she began writing autobiographical essays. Has she Um, she published anything by this stage? Oh, I'm just getting to that. Oh, okay, okay, great, sorry. I'm just getting to that. Always skipping ahead. Yep, so... She wrote an essay, uh, "The School Days of an Indian Girl," which is what I was just quoting from before, as well as some short stories. And these were often very critical of her experiences within white society, as we've kind of already got a little bit of taste of in some of those. Yes. And also, as I've said, her struggles to identify with the white world. And so at this time, she's starting to develop the two creative pursuits that would become the most integral part of her life, music and writing, but also the political and social conscious that would make up a large part of her activism. And all of these three things are going to come together really soon, too. Her short stories and essays were published course, yes, in Harper's Weekly oh, nice. and the Atlantic Monthly. Wow. They're pretty impressive publications. That's right. That
0: even over 100 years later are still around. They're still around. Yeah,
1: among others. She gained this kind of a reputation in Boston for her literary talents. She got a little bit of a fan club going even, some mm-hmm. might say. So just after this, she went to study at the – conservatorium of music in boston and so she already had a reputation there for her like publications of these stories and she was she was there kind of mingling with this artistic group of people and she became quite well known as being a very talented young woman the kind of woman uh, i hate meeting because i'm like fuck you so fucking good at
0: everything fuck you for being so good at everything because she's
1: also at this stage like those publications were in 1901 and 1902 she was being published so 1901 she was in her early 20s mm. which is really impressive fucking impressive god damn it let's not dwell let's not dwell <laughs> on people who are published but you impressive know in the what do you know what's also really impressive alicia what it's actually probably one of the most impressive things about this is that she was really the first native american woman to tell her own story in her own words
0: Oh, because as you're saying, autobiography.
1: Yes, she was writing autobiography. She was writing it without this without, is like a mediator, without a mediator, yeah, without a translator, an editor, an interpreter, an ethnographer. These are her words. That's
0: really interesting, actually.
1: Yeah, because that's quite late in the piece to think that that's really starting with her. Holy crapola! Yeah. It is, it's really actually quite shocking mm. that you can get to nineteen oh one and this is the first time a Native American woman's words appear for what they are. Yeah.
0: Or at least that we know that are documented. That
1: we know though that are documented. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I guess published in a in a broader kind of, you know, circulated public, public sense. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said though, these stories were really quite critical particularly like she was criticizing the methods of white culture in quote i quote this from dexter fisher thanks, in the thanks, forward dexter. to her collection american indian stories lay it on me dexter in educating young, young indians the culturally genocidal intentions behind the inculculation of white culture in indian students and the mismanagement of indian welfare by federal bureaucracies so Unsurprisingly, this didn't garner her a lot of favours among certain circles. Particularly those stories that were critical of the Native American boarding school systems generally put a bit of a bad taste in the mouth of, say, her employer at one of these mm. Native American boarding schools, a man named Mr. Richard Henry Pratt. A few a uh, Pratt. Oh, Pratt. Well, there you go, clearly a Pratt. A few too many truth bombs maybe for you mr pratt maybe just a cutler too many truth mm. broms and he said that she was a uh pratt the pratt called her <laughs> a uh, so
0: juvenile yet
1: so hilarious he called her stories trash Ooh. and her worse than a pagan <laughs> you know what that's one of those insults where
0: i would just be like whatever's
1: you what, know what whatever's do you know who was like Shrug, (laughs) whatevs. I'm going to say she was pretty like, whatevs. So much so that in 1902, she published an essay titled, Why I Am a Pagan. Hey, best River. (laughs) And this essay begins with a very descriptive passage about her spiritual relationship with nature. She writes, when the spirit swells my breast, I love to roam leisurely among the green hills or sometimes sitting on the brink of the murmuring Missouri. I marvel at the great blue overhead and it goes on to describe an interaction with a converted man who tells Mm, her very pretty like i said really amazing descriptions of nature Mm. you should read this essay it's really quite short and you can find it online (laughs) I like the way you're like even you have time to read this elizabeth even you even you yeah okay yeah so she goes on to describe an interaction with a converted man who tells her he never sees her in church anymore doesn't she remember that sinful men dance in torturing flames forever? Well, and I ain't a man, so only sinful men go. Yeah, in which case I'm, I'm fine. Oh, no okay. problem yeah. <laughs> She writes, The little incident recalled to mind the copy of a missionary paper brought to my notice a few days ago, in which a Christian pugilist commented upon a recent article of mine, grossly perverting the spirit of my pen. Still, I would not forget that the pale-faced missionary and the hoodooed Aborigine are both God's creatures, though small indeed their own conceptions of infinite love. A wee child toddling in a wonder world, I prefer their dogma, my excursions into the natural gardens where the voice of the great spirit is heard in the twittering of birds, the rippling of mighty waters and the sweet breathing of flowers. If this is paganism, then at present, at least, I am a pagan. Bam. 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 So am I, as a Carla <laughs> If that's a paganism. There you go. Put me down for that. Put me down. Mm-hmm. I also just want to note, though, the antiquated language it's a quote it's a historical document (laughs) that's right so this was really significant not only because akala shah as a native american woman was as i said describing in her own words her own experience in such a critical and subversive manner but it also appeared at a time when it was increasingly more normal for native americans to and this is a quote humbly declare their conversions to christianity so basically she's not no, exactly. <laughs> so it's subversive because at the time. Oh, okay, so yes. All right, now I'm with you. A, yes, yes, it's There were a lot of, quotes. Quotes. A lot of quotes in a row there I, I lot got lot of, lost. I've, I've, look, I feel like I need to acknowledge when I'm not using my own words because I am a researcher. I'm with you now. <laughs> I'm with you now. But yeah, so basically, yes, at the time. It was really normal for Native American people to be like, oh, we're converting to Christianity and God is great and yeah. blah, blah, blah. And she's just like, nah. She's bucking the trend. Bucking the trend in a very subversive way. Now I got gotcha. you. Yes. I also really like that this kind of rebellion, it is so subversive. It's, also, it's just like it's a lush, beautiful, descriptive form of rebellion. It's not like she's not just saying, fuck you. She's just <laughs> like being very eloquent with, with her fuck you yes very well articulated fuck yes. you," yes yeah. and i think that's what i love most about her is she's just this beautiful woman who so elegantly tells everyone fuck you <laughs> in her own amazing creative beautiful way <laughs> but the rebellious at Kalashar, like i said didn't sit well with the white men in power gonna get her in trouble one of these days well one of these days is here um, and she was removed this from is her the day removed from her teaching post and instead she was assigned as a recruiter essentially becoming one of those who was sent to the reservations to recruit children into the school what the fuck yeah can she not do that can she say no well here's what happened alicia okay she fucks this up Yes. Good. I like
0: it. Like, I mean, not as in she fucks this up, but as in like, she fucks this up.
1: Yes. Yeah. I mean, but first she does take the opportunity to go home. She hasn't been home for many years. She wanted to see her mum. So she goes home and she was really saddened by the state of the reservation. A lot of white people had started to move onto the reservation lands, which is not allowed. It's a federal law that says you're not allowed to do that, but they did it anyway her brother had kind of fallen into poverty because his role had been taken away from him by a white guy so he had been educated and he had a job and then that was taken away and her mother's house was kind of a bit ramshackle things aren't going amazingly back home so she when she returned to carlisle yeah this already really fraught relationship between herself and pratt was made worse and she continued to denounce the whitewashing of her culture that the school was responsible for. And so unsurprisingly, this ended her time at Carlisle. Mm. She did eventually say, nah, fuck this. Yep. Um, I'm gone. I'm gone. So- but probably
0: more eloquently than that.
1: Oh, yeah, as far more recently. Yes. So, this is when she goes to study at the New England Conservatory of Music in Boston. So, she didn't actually end up having to
0: recruit anyone then?
1: Maybe, I don't know. Like, it just, Mm. all the sources I read say she went home, saw her mum, and quit her job and went to Boston. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yes so we're not sure about that not sure if she because the thing is that she really did believe in education
0: yeah and
1: that's again one of these tensions that's so prevalent in her biography and yeah so this is one of the criticisms that like is actually leveled against her by a lot of people is that they kind of accuse her of something of a misguided activism because while she did so much work advocating particularly in her later years advocating for citizenship and employment rights for Native Americans, she was essentially kind of doing so in a way that promoted assimilation Mm -hmm. rather than the protection of culture and rights. And she's sort of seen as maybe even pan, okay, some accuse her of kind of pandering to white culture by advocating education and that Anglo style of education, I should say. But in the um, end, that's
0: the whole problem though, isn't it? And that's why it's so problematic because in the end, you're between a rock and a hard place to yeah, use to use like a super-duper cliche. But that's what happens. That's exactly where you end up because you have had that split.
1: Because she's also, all of her writings so far, like they're also so critical of the boarding school system. She's so critical of the way that these education uh, systems strip away Native American culture. And yet at the same time, she... Does also believe that education is important and it is totally being stuck in between a rock and a hard place. Mm. And that's it. Like she said, she can't, she kind of can't go home. Yeah. Well, that's
0: the whole thing, isn't it? You end up completely uprooted and left in this limbo state.
1: Yeah. But meanwhile, she became romantically involved. Romantically? What, with like a vampire?
0: Romantically. Rom- romantically,
1: romantically involved. Romantically involved. With a man named Carlos Montezuma. I do sound like a vampire. So Carlos Montezuma, he was a really another really important Native American activist. But he was actually, I think his history is that he was I think he was kidnapped as a child and then he was sold to an Italian man. Holy crap. He was sold, yes, and this Italian man renamed him Carlos Montezuma. But he was a really important activist. He was one of the first Native American doctors. So he graduated with a medical degree and he set up a lot of Native American kind of institutions and foundations and things like that. So those two became engaged. Yay, love. Yay, love. Yeah. That
0: came out of nowhere. (laughs) Yay, love. Yay, love. Yay, love. All right, yay, love. For now. Oh, boo, love.
1: (laughs) Impending boo to love. Yeah, because... Mm. Having lost her place her teaching place anyway, she decided to return home to the reservation and tried to convince Montezuma to join her and become a reservation doctor. But he, meanwhile, wanted her to join him in Chicago and pursue a far more kind of middle class American lifestyle. So It was basically a conflict between her pride in her heritage and his desire to show himself off as an example of Native Americans' capacity to excel in white society. Mm, Again, problematic. Which is, again, that whole problematic of being stuck between a rock and a hard place. If
0: you go back through our podcasts and, like, have a shot of tequila every time we use the word problematic... It is a podcast called
1: Deviant
0: (laughs) Like, Funnily enough, that's so much stuff should be problematic.
1: (laughs) So obviously, well, not obviously, but inevitably. Mm Mm-hmm the relationship broke down and mm. she did want to go home. So she went home, but this time at home allowed her to collect many oral stories from her Sioux tribe, which she published in the collection, old Indian legends. And this is actually quite a famous publication. Again, we're not American, so I can't say how famous, but perhaps you listeners at home have heard of it. Yes, hopefully. Um, and these were largely stories intended for entertainment rather than being sacred stories. And so um, such as that of the Dakota trickster Iktomi. Oh, yeah, trickster stories. Yeah. the best. Got something more to say about trickster stories. please. But basically, so she chose these stories because she wanted to reach a culturally diverse audience. So basically, she wanted white children to read these stories as well as Native American children. And so another academic – sorry, I'm referencing a lot more academics than normal in this, but I, you know – did a lot of reading for this one. So Dorothea M. Suzak suggests that she chose to represent the trickster Iktomi deliberately, not just here, but in other works as well, as a representation of the trickery of white people. Mm-hmm. She says Iktomi's stories instruct Native American people to beware and not be fooled by smooth talk. She says he also represents a creative, powerful force for Native American people to defend their cultural heritage by engaging in cultural trickery, as Zitkala Shah did.
0: Yeah don't trust the apple stories yes and then
1: fuck up all the jobs you give them yes (laughs) essentially yeah it's sort of like play into their game and it is that kind of subversive power mm. it's look like you're doing the right thing but do so so that you can get in there and fuck it up from the inside do you want to know who one of her famous readers was oh yes please none other none other than Helen Keller. Oh, really? Who, in 1919, wrote... Helen Keller. Helen Keller. How come we haven't done her on Deviant Women yet? I think because she's so well-known. Yeah,
0: probably a lot of other people have done. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I thank you for your book on Indian legends. I have read them with exquisite pleasure. Exquisite pleasure! Like all folk tales, they mirror the child life of the world. Your tales of birds, beasts, tree, and spirit cannot but hold captive the hearts of all children. They will kindle in their young minds that eternal wonder which creates poetry and keeps life fresh and eager. I wish you and your little book of Indian tales all success. Well, little books are a little patronising. It is. I know. I got to that and I was like, oh, that's a tad patronising. Your little book of Indian (laughs) tales. I wish your little book of Indian tales all success. Very good. Other than that, thanks, Helen. (laughs) (laughs) Now, unsurprisingly, though, the high-flying world of publishing not the most lucrative
0: yeah i'm not surprised about that hey nah there's no money to be made <laughs> people there's, there's no, no money, no money. Short stories there's no money to be made in short stories we know
1: this we know we learned this the hard way
0: yes yeah
1: we're They're still learning this the
0: way.
1: <laughs> so she became a clerk at the standing rock reservation where she met her new beau Captain Raymond Telefacy Bonnen. Shit, she's good at getting guys with awesome names, (laughs) (laughs) isn't (laughs) she? Telefacy. He's a captain anyway. Teleface or Telefacy, I'm not sure. Whatever. And he was also a Yankton Sioux. Mm -hmm. She transferred to the Uintah and Ore Reservation in Utah, where they settled down and married. And her son? They didn't just marry. They married. They married. Marwage. Her son Raymond was born. Raymond? Raymond. Sorry. <laughs> I just, oh, I
0: I'm so, so impressed with everybody's
1: names. Her husband's name
0: was Raymond. Oh. His first name's Raymond. But the rest of his name was pretty...
1: Yes. Bodacious. He was born in early 1903 and he was their only child. She spent the next few years in something of a creative slump, I'm afraid to say. Oh. She became frustrated with the conditions on the reservation and with the demands of motherhood. Mm, that sounds reasonable. Mm. But it was here that she met... A professor and composer, William F. Hansen. The original Hansen. I was gonna say. And in 1910. The, the original Hansen learned. And 1910. They began collaborating on the music for an opera. Oh. The Sundance Opera. Oh wow. Yes. Does this opera still exist? I tried to find it and I couldn't. Oh fuck! damn it but Can i could find, find i this? mean i could find information about it zikala shav wrote the libretto and the songs and it was based on sacred sioux ritual and the federal government banned it from being performed oh, on the reservation oh for fuck's sake but nevertheless it was performed it premiered in 1913 at the orpheus hall in vernal utah orpheus hall yes a, great for a hall. i know and it was met with great critical acclaim. Hey, critical acclaim. It was the first opera to be co-authored by a Native American. And so
0: what year was this? 19... 1913 at premiere. Oh, 1913. Yeah. Oh, so wow. like
1: I said, she had a slump for a few years. Yeah, yeah. Then mm-hmm. she wrote the opera. Came out
0: of her creative slump.
1: Yeah. So this was another breaking those glass ceilings. Yeah.
0: Smashing them down. However... oh.
1: Get oh, ready for another saying, This gro- is a roller coaster, right? I know. Every step forward, we take a couple mm. backwards. When it was later performed by the New York Light Opera Guild in uh, the 1930s, it was attributed solely to William F. Hansen. Oh, no. Yeah. You can't trust those Hansens? No. You can't trust them. I don't think it was his fault. I think it was the opera company's fault. Well, still, I like to blame the Hansons. <laughs> but yeah, that's so typical, isn't it? Oh yeah, you wrote half of this opera, but you're not white, so and you're a woman, so we're just gonna leave you off. Off you go. Off you go. Name. Let's just erase that from history. Well, it wasn't erased from history. Like we still know about it. <laughs> Let's, Let's just erase that from the opera. It, school, was, then. it was erased from that particular opera in yeah. the thirties. But that's fucked. It is fucked. That's the academic term for it. Fucked. I believe that that is the quote that's given quite often. Yeah, technical term. So she's done the opera, breaking more glass ceilings, and she becomes more and more politically active. So her activism really starts to come to the fore in the 20s. So she became the secretary of the Society for the American Indian, which had recently been established to promote Native American self-determination. And it was established by her old flame dr montezuma hey carlos as part of her duties she corresponded with the bureau of indian affairs and this was where her husband worked okay so she began to criticize their practices how her husband felt about her being so
0: close with the old mate montezuma
1: well i mean he founded the society but i don't think it necessarily meant that they worked in the same office that makes sense yeah yeah (laughs) she began to criticize their practices um, she reported incidents of abuse resulting from children's refusal to pray in the Christian manner.
0: Oh.
1: And this, again, is another time when she pissed off some people. <laughs> She's good at that. In summary, pissed some people off. So, like I said, her husband, though, works for the Bureau of Indian Affairs. She's pissed off some people and a criticism got her husband dismissed from his position. That's not fair, though. This required them to move to Washington, D.C. I told you we were going to go to D.C. Oh, yeah, D.C. The top of the episode. Let's get there. So, according to other sources, though, it was her promotion to Secretary of the um, SAI that saw them move to Washington, not because her husband got fired. So, I'm actually not sure. There's two versions of why they moved to Washington, but either way, they moved to Washington. They get to Washington. We're in D.C. So, part of her role as Secretary, she became the editor of its journal, the American Indian Magazine. And she began writing articles for them that continued her activist messages, particularly calling attention to social injustices. And among her writings from this period was a publication called Oklahoma's Poor Rich Indians, an Orgy of Graft and Exploitation of the Five Civilized Tribes. Oh, what? An orgy? That's what it says. (gasps) This piece motivated the US government to step in and prevent corporations from defrauding Native Americans out of their land. Mm. So that's really significant. Mm-hmm. And so this also helped with the passing of the Indian Reorganization Act of 1934, in which reservations were placed under Native American control.
0: So that happened in the 1930s. Mm.
1: Oh. and so she had a hand in that. Yeah, yeah. This publication was one of the things that helped the government to finally do something. Wow. Impressive stuff. Yeah, she did so much. Dude. She did so much. <laughs> Dude! Audacious. <laughs> yes. Um. She also began to lecture and lobby Congress on behalf of the SAI, promoting the culture and traditions of Native Americans. And this work saw her contribute to another, another monumental bill, the Indian Citizenship Act. Oh, so that wasn't until... The 1930s? Yes. Wow. Which – Oh, yeah,
0: we can't talk. We – We can't talk in Australia. Can't talk,
1: considering it didn't happen until 1967. 30 years later. 30 years later (laughs) in Australia. (laughs) All right, that's fine. So So good
0: job, America.
1: Yeah, you beat us on that one. (laughs) Really? It's awful. (laughs) Of course it is. Oh, God. Oh, my God. This is that whole thing that we were talking about before where you just forget how recent it
0: is. I know, actually. That history – I mean, this is just the last couple of hundred years. Yeah. Well, last hundred years. Yeah. It's super recent. Yeah. And we like like to congratulate ourselves now on thinking that we're, like, so advanced and so beyond all of that.
1: Oh, man. No. so not. She and Raymond, her husband, established the National Council of American Indians in 1926, which was an organization that helped secure citizenship rights and... Sikala Shah was also active in the 1920s in the movement for women's rights. Um, So she joined an organization called the General Federation of Women's Clubs in 1921, um, which was dedicated to diversity in its membership. So it was an intersectional feminist movement in the
0: 1920s before the idea of intersectional feminism was even Even a thing thing.
1: so when we again talk about how recent history is also this was a hundred years ago nearly and then everyone just forgot about intersectional feminism i guess (laughs) for like 80 years just put that
0: in put the, on the back
1: burner we'll for a while. Back. We'll come back to that. Yeah, so that organisation, like I said, it was dedicated to diversity in its membership and to maintaining a public vote for women's concerns. 1921? Did America even have the vote for women in 1921? I don't know, actually. I'm not sure when America got the vote. Well, we, I
0: know we were ahead of them on that. We Yes, so there you we go. do beat you on the vote. Because it's a competition, obviously. Yes, everything's a competition. It's not all a competition. Just uh, like Eurovision. <laughs>
1: And she continued her work with these organisations all the way up until her death in oh, 1938. Yeah. So how old was she then? 61, oh. apparently. Oh, wow. Yeah. That seems it's not that, that old. That seems like such a short amount of time has passed and she's crammed all of that. Yeah. I mean, she crammed a lot in. Think about how much she did even just before she was in like her mid-twenties yeah
0: but also i guess this is this incredibly volatile period of history all periods of history are volatile when you look back at them i mean this is an incredibly volatile period mm. of history as well it just doesn't seem like that at the, the moment because we're living it but i mean this really is a, a point in history where there are so many turning points for so many different people and so many different cultural and gender ideas so yeah. much shifting and changing in terms of rights uh, and who has them mm. and who doesn't have them mm. and to think that she was a part of so much so much of that it. happened so in much of it. such a short amount of time yeah yeah it's quite amazing, amazing. like we
1: said she broke many a ceiling Punched those fuckers down. she did <laughs> is that a saying she punched those fuckers down. It is now. Punched <laughs> those fuckers down. She was buried at Arlington Cemetery and in 1997 she was elected an honoree of Women's History Month by the National Women's History Project.
0: Hey, So that's
1: uh, something to end on.
0: That's an upbeat
1: note. It's an upbeat note. Yeah. But, yeah, like most
0: uh, – She's obviously not a figure that's been forgotten anywhere along the way.
1: No. Yeah. No. And I, I suspect that she's only so novel to us because we are – Australian, you know.
0: Hmm. She might be a much more familiar figure. I hope so.
1: Yeah. Please let
0: us know. Yeah, you can let us know, uh, all our North American friends, Mm. if this is a story that is familiar to you or if indeed it is a brand spanking new one.
1: Yeah. You can read the stories. You can listen to the stories. There are actually, like, podcasts of recordings of, of some of her short stories and of the retellings that she does. Oh, great. So... Yeah, you should check those out. And like I said, a lot of her essays are quite short.
0: They're really... Well, because this is the other reason why we return to this period of history so much is because so much still exists, so much documentation still floats around that we can access. Yeah. It's there for us to access. So that makes it such a wealth of yeah. knowledge and a wealth of information. I was
1: trying to see if I could find a recording of yeah, well, Yeah, because that's what I was thinking. I was thinking, I couldn't.
0: this is a period of history mm. where, you know, things are starting to be recorded as well. So Yeah,
1: I couldn't track down anything. Yeah. Unfortunately, but that was amazing. Maybe
0: somebody else can. Maybe yeah. somebody else has some archives, maybe. Yeah. Where it exists. But there we go. We've laid that out on the table for you. You can take <laughs> it. If you want to, if you can find some more information, you can share that back with us. We would love to hear from you.
1: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. If you know any more stories or anecdotes about her life, there's so much criticism about her as well that I just couldn't, like in terms of, of her literary work and the themes in her work that I just didn't have time to go into. Mm. But yeah, like, especially so much of this stuff. I'm I'm just really fascinated by her relation. I think her spiritual relationship is really interesting and her sense of self and her own identity. Cause she seemed to waver a lot in her life. Like she did, like I said, you know, she wrote the essay, why I'm a pagan. And for a while she was, you know, kind of, did have that sort of identity but then apparently she also like practiced multiple different versions of christianity in her life as well like for a while some people say she became a mormon she had a mormon funeral really yeah yeah and apparently she practiced catholicism for a while where did you say she died she died in washington dc but yeah she did live in utah for a long time so it wouldn't be surprising if mormonism got in there but it's i just found it really interesting that she that she would have gone to Mormonism and and Catholicism after having the experiences that she did with evangelical missionaries in her youth. I know, but I suppose that that whole idea of spiritualities, when you
0: are a person who is deeply spiritual in one way or the other, if you want to practice your faith, it's hard to do that in isolation, right? And if you cut off from your traditional Mm. roots and your traditional ways of doing that, well, then you find a way that you can. Mm. And if that's through another form of worship that's been given to you, I mean, that's the same thing, really, isn't it? Because all you're doing is tapping into spirituality one way or the other. Yeah. It's all. I'm sorry, everyone out there who's religious, to conflate it all together. But I mean, in the end.
1: But she did do a little bit of conflation in her writing, that's, anyway. Well, that's you what you know, she's she doing, writes isn't about it? the fact that the Great Spirit is God. Yeah. But yeah. I think she's just such a fascinating figure because I really like the tensions in her work and I really like the passion and I really like that fire that you can see burning. I love her subversiveness. Like I said, that kind of lyrical, beautiful, descriptive, but biting Mm. subversiveness in her Mm. writing. And I think that that's there particularly in the works from when she was younger not that I've read everything by any means. So but... are, they,
0: are the things you've found, are they just snippets online or can you actually buy her full biographies of... and essays
1: a lot of her works are freely available online. Yeah, I read a lot of the essays and stories online. Yeah, there's a podcast that do readings from old Indian legends from that collection. But yeah, otherwise, I read a bunch of the stories and essays just freely available online. So just look them up. I will. I will. I really loved Why I'm a Pagan and I really loved the di- like her diaries from when she was at school. I'll get into it. Mm. As I say, with all that free time I don't have. Yeah. But...
0: Thanks, Lauren. Thank you. Thank you once again. Oh, thanks for listening to for me. Opening
1: our ears
0: and, and eyes.
1: Snotty nose. And opening our snotty <laughs> noses is gross. I was uh, just want to say thank you for listening, even though you have a snotty nose oh, but that's and all right. a cold. Well, you know, I do what I can.
0: <laughs> We've got to do it, you know. This podcast is important. There are people out there waiting for it relying on us (laughs) to come to them with the information (laughs) that's what we're doing talk randomly about eurovision every now and then
1: (laughs) sorry about that because i just can't let it go but if you want more of this you can support us i'm going to use that as my tangent you can support us in a number of ways you can support us by jumping onto itunes and you can give us a review or subscribe we would love it if you did that that would be brilliant and of course you can also support us on
0: patreon you can support us for as little as two dollars and you get extra content uh that extra content is going to explode in the next few months it's going to get pretty exciting (laughs) because when i do have some spare time we're amping that right up yeah So if you get on board and support us on Patreon now, you can catch up on all the previous month's content and you can look forward to some more special stuff coming your way.
1: That's right. Otherwise, you can follow us on Twitter and on Facebook and now on Instagram. On the Instagrams. Or, of course,
0: if you would like to purchase one of our fancy T-shirts or our enamel pins, you can find us on Etsy. Yep. And is that it? Does that wrap
1: us up? Yeah. You know, great. I only have Eurovision to talk about otherwise. Look, we can have a whole Eurovision bonus episode on Patreon. Oh, that's a good idea. Yes. It's like a great idea. Let's do that. That might put people off. <laughs> <laughs> but it's optional. It's so, optional. That's you know, true. there's yeah. lots of other good stuff on Patreon too. I
0: just wanted to quickly say the best thing about Eurovision is that they cancelled the China telecast <gasps> because China refused to screen A people with tattoos. Yeah. B, the fabulous Irish entry, my favorite. Where it was my favorite. It entry. Was, there was a beautiful love song and like ambiguous lyrics, seriously, like just just a standard lovely ballad, but the dancers were men, were men. <gasps> two homosexual men. Two boys
1: in love. Two boys
0: in love. Two beautiful boys in love. Having a dance and uh, would not be screened on China television. So Eurovision just went, fuck that. Never yeah, mind. Cancel telecast. Midway through the broadcast. Think that's brilliant. So, you know, great. Good stuff. Well, that's it from us. <laughs> <laughs> we won't be talking at <laughs> oh, all any of this stuff next time. In another two weeks, we'll be talking about something completely different. Actually, <laughs> I'm up next. And yeah. to be honest, I was gonna take us to America as well in a similar period of history sorry so you <laughs> might end up getting a similarish period of history in a similar place in the fortnight unless i change my mind between right. now and then but we'll see
1: until then thank you very much to india hui for the music and to brendan davies for the sound and thank you very
0: much to you for joining us we'll see you again next time
1: see you later see you later <laughs>